I want to show you something. This is one of my Bibles. This is the Bible I use to impress people, to let people know I'm really serious. It's very thick. It's two volumes. The reason for that is because in between each printed page with words, there is a blank piece of paper. About 15 years ago, I worked at a rare bookstore. I call it a rare bookstore because even though we had used books, that wasn't really the focus of the store. Uh, it was a place that specialized in really old books, like 200, 300, 400-year-old books. Uh, specialized in old theological texts. So this was like my happy place, so I'd go get lost in the stacks and read these beautiful books. Uh, my boss was uh, an artist. He was a specialist in taking old books and studying the, the way those books were made 200 years ago and using those historic techniques to restore the book uh, so that it looked like it was originally. It was really, really cool. Lots of amazing stuff there. Uh, one day, I was uh, reading uh, a biography of this old theologian, a guy named Jonathan Edwards, and it, I came across this sort of passing comment. He talked about how uh, when uh, he got a Bible, he would unbind it, and then he would uh, take blank pieces of paper, put it between each page, and rebind it so that he could take notes on those pages. And I kind of mentioned to Michelle, we were dating at the time, I said, it would be so cool. I would love to have a Bible like that. And so she kind of went behind my back and she talked to my boss at the store and said, could you make one of those Bibles for Clayton? And uh, she actually helped with some of it. She did the tedious work of actually putting, you know, the thousands of blank pages in there. Uh, but then this was the result. Uh, my boss made this and he pulled out all the stops. He did all the bells and whistles, the, the leather and the gold and the marbled pages and all sorts of other little things. Uh, and he even went and got the seal from the publisher, the, the official seal of the translation and put it on the side. And it is just a, a beautiful book, a little too beautiful. Uh, when Michelle gave me this on Christmas, she said, all right, this is the one condition. You got to fill up all of those pages. I said, I'm going to do it. I, you know, I got my whole life, right? You know, I'm going to fill them up. 15 years later, you know how many pages are filled? Two. <laughs> I promise I read the Bible sometimes. I, I'm serious, I do. <laughs> but here's the problem. These books are so nice. They're so amazing that when I think I'm going to put my pen on this page and I'm going to put something permanent in it, I, I freeze up. I think I, I'm going to have my terrible handwriting and I'm going to you know, mess something up and scratch something out. and you know, th These are probably going to last a while and I'll probably write something stupid and it'll get passed down to my kids and my grandkids and they'll be like, what was he thinking? And I, I just, I lock up. It, it, it's too nice. I'm afraid of failure and so I won't take the risk. A lot of us live our lives that way. We get, we get bound up thinking we're going to mess things up. We're going to be embarrassed. We're going to uh, screw something good up. And so we never try anything. That's what we're talking about today. We're in a series called RSVP. We've been talking about the invitations of Jesus. And this is really what Jesus is doing all the time with all of us. He is inviting us into a deeper relationship with him, no matter where we are in our spiritual journey. Now, some of you are here, and you, you don't even know what you think about Jesus yet, but you, you kind of hear him saying, come and see. Come and check it out. Explore and figure out what there is to this whole thing. Others of you, you hear him saying, come and follow. You're, you're ready. You're thinking, I, I'm, I'm going to cross that line. I'm going to commit. I'm in. Or maybe you've just recently done that. But even those of us who have been following Jesus for years, this is what day-to-day -day life with Jesus is like. He's always saying, come and follow me. Come and be with me. Come and receive rest. Come and be involved in the things I'm doing. And every single day, as followers of Christ, this is what we do. We ask the question, are we going to respond or not to Jesus' invitation today? And so that's what we've been talking about for the last three weeks. 
Today we're going to be looking at a really famous story of Jesus, one of the most famous. It's in Matthew chapter 14, so if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn there. This story is so famous that even if you have never read the Bible, you have probably run across references to it in pop culture, but you may have never heard the original version, so I'm going to read it to you now. It's Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they cried. They cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why do you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. This book, these words, have been read by billions of people throughout history and across cultures, and it has been changing lives everywhere it goes. Some of you might be wondering uh, if you can really trust the Bible, but I can tell you this. Uh, Around here, so many of us have discovered that when we read this, this is more than just an interesting piece of literature or inspiring stories. This is the word of God. And because of that, we like to thank God for it. So let's do that now. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're going to ask three questions about this story. Why don't we take risks? Who invites us to take risks? And what happens when we actually take those risks? Let's start with the first one here. Why don't we take risks? Uh, Here is my answer to that. We don't take risks because our world already feels dangerous enough. I want you to imagine this is a dozen guys in a small boat. Uh, Don't think of a a big ocean liner or something sailing on the high seas. Uh, Archaeologists have excavated, actually, a fairly well-preserved boat that was used on the Sea of Galilee in the first century. It's 27 feet long, about 7 feet wide, And it's not really that big. On my drive to church in the summer, when I cross over the Fox River, I see boats as big or bigger than this uh, on the river. This is is not a big boat. And and with 12 guys or more on board, it might have been fairly crowded. And these guys are out in the middle of the water, and uh, the book of John tells us they're maybe three, four miles out. It's about halfway across the Sea of Galilee. Uh, And normally this would not have been a big deal for them. A number of these guys are fishermen. They've been sailing this lake their entire life. But tonight... A storm has rushed on unexpectedly onto the lake. And the wind was fierce and the waves were tossing the boat around. And after hours of hard rowing, they had only made it far enough to be, you know, so far they couldn't really go back and far enough away from the next shore that it was going to be a really tough, tough ride. Now, if you were part of the ancient audience and you were reading this story, the, the very setting itself would have told you something. 
Now, think about it this way. If you are watching a movie, and the opening shot of the movie is a, a dark and stormy night, and it comes on a house, and the lights are out, and the lightning cracks, and you see a hooded figure walking up to the door. You know what kind of movie you're watching, right? This is a scary movie. Uh, or let's say uh, the, the movie opens up. Before you've seen any character, know any plot, a tumbleweed rolls across a dusty road. And there are mountains in the background, and there's uh, stores along the street, and they've got swinging doors. You, you know what kind of story you're about to hear, right? There's a western. The same was true in the ancient world in stories set on the sea. The sea was wild and untamed. And in pretty much every culture, they associated the sea with the forces of evil and chaos that wreaked havoc in our world. Most people had never ventured very far from the shore, and no one really knew what was lurking in the depths of the water, and so they were terrified of it. Frankly, mostly that's true still today. And so the sea was this symbol of the the, the forces that human beings didn't understand and couldn't control. And and when people told a story set on the sea, especially if it was stormy, immediately ancient people were thinking, not just about how they're going to survive the sea, but about all of those things in their life that, that were chaotic and out of control and the things they couldn't tame. They were wondering, how do you tame the chaos of life? You ever ask that question? How do you tame the chaos of life? I do. Every time I open my email, right? Uh, I am the parent of some preschoolers, so um, I'm asking that all the time. So much of our life is outside our control. It swirls in our minds. Will I get the job? Will I lose the job? Will I ever meet someone to marry? What's going to happen to my kids when they leave home? How, How do I keep up with the demands at work? Will I ever have enough to retire? What happens if she doesn't recover from this illness? What's happening in the future of our country? Will there be another shooting? Will we go to war? Will Stranger Things Season 2 live up to the hype? (laughs) Most of the people who get that joke are at home binge-watching it right now. (laughs) We're small, and the world is big, and it feels threatening and beyond our control. And this is a big part of the reason why we don't take risks. We've got more than we can handle already. Like, if I'm barely keeping up, I'm not going to raise the stakes. And when the waves, they're crashing down on you, the wind is against you, you you don't take risks. You just pray that you make it to the other shore. In the storm here, I'm guessing that the disciples have got one thing in their mind. They're thinking, where in the world is Jesus? Because you got to remember, this is not the first time they've been on this lake in a boat in a storm. In Matthew chapter 8, just a few chapters earlier, uh, another famous story of, of Jesus. The, a storm comes on and the disciples are terrified uh, and, and they cry out to Jesus. They say, help us, save us. And Jesus gets up and, and like the mother of a lippy kid, rebukes the storm and the storm gets quiet, calms down. And I'm sure the disciples are thinking, well, if he were here, we could just ask him to do that again, right? But he's not. Have you ever felt like in the moment when you needed him most, God was nowhere to be found? question is, what what was Jesus doing at this time? Look at verse 22. Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him. This this is really an intentional thing on Jesus' part. And then he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. I wonder what he was praying about. We're not told exactly, but there's a few things that he might have been praying about. For one thing, in this chapter, the two things that have just happened is uh, his friend and cousin, John the Baptist, has died. And he just fed 5,000 people with just a few loaves and some fish, one of the most amazing things Jesus did. 
So I'm thinking probably on the mountain, he's processing these two events. One of the, the, the best and the worst things that happened in his life. He's talking to God about that. But I also think he's being really deliberate in sending them out onto the lake. I have a feeling that the main thing Jesus was praying about was what was happening to those guys on the water. That he was praying for his disciples. He knew what he was doing. But what's interesting to me is that this is what Jesus is doing right now for you and for me. You ever ask that question, when Jesus went back to heaven, what's he doing? You know, is he just kind of sitting around by the pool, you know, playing some golf with Moses and Elijah? Like, it's just a vacation until he gets called back into duty and sent back to finish what he started? No. Jesus is working. Uh, Hebrews tells us that he's, he's before the Father and he's interceding for us. That means he's representing us in heaven. He is making sure that our needs are front and center before the council of heaven so that, that, that what we need is being responded to the way it needs to be. Jesus is praying for us right now. If you ever feel like Jesus has abandoned you, like he's nowhere to be found, remember that that is actually not the case. He is working with the Father and the Spirit to make sure his purposes are accomplished in your life. Even in situations that feel so overwhelming that we would never think of taking a risk, Jesus is there. Here's the second question, though, that I want to ask. Who is it that invites us to risk? And I know the obvious answer is is Jesus here, but I want to dig into what that means. It's about three or four in the morning when Jesus finally leaves the mountain and joins the disciples. And he does so by walking on the water. Now, that is super cool. It's amazing, right? But it's also kind of random. Like, why walk on the water? You know, is he, is he just doing it to kind of show off? You know, like, is he like, hey, guys, check it out. I can do this. Like, no boat, not going to walk around the lake. Can you do this? In Mark's account of the story, there's a little detail that I find so interesting. He says, he saw the disciples straining at the oars, and he went out to them walking on the lake, and he was about to pass them by. Like, I just, I, I laugh every time I see that because it, it feels like he wasn't even trying to get to the boat. He's just, you know, hey, hey guys, what's up, you know? It, it's sort of like when you're driving on the highway and you've got, you know, your little minivan and you're not going that fast and someone in a sports car comes zooming up and they, they come around you and they're passing you, but they pause just long enough to be like, nice ride, you know? Like, <laughs> Jesus is doing this, you know? Like, how's the acceleration in that thing, boys? You know, and there he goes. It's interesting This phrase, he was about to pass them by, comes from a really specific place in the Old Testament. There's another place where this comes up. It's the story where Moses is up on the mountain with God. And the people of Israel, they're they're about to leave the mountain. They're going on this adventure to uh, take the promised land. And Moses is like, God, you have to be with us if we're going to do this. There's no way we can do this without you. Your presence has to be with us. And as part of that conversation with God, Moses says, you know, what would give us a, a lot of confidence is if you would just show me your glory. And God says, well, I, I can't do that. That would kill you. You can't just look straight on me. But here's what I'll do. I'll put you in a cave and I'll pass by you. And after I've passed by, you can see sort of the afterglow of my glory. But this is where it's talking about. God will pass by and show his glory. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's not just racing them to the shore. He's deliberately showing them who he is, showing his glory, that he is more than a miracle worker, more than a human teacher. He is actually God. There are other clues in this passage that point to that. Uh, For one thing, uh, in the Old Testament, imagery about walking on water is used repeatedly, but the only person who ever does it is God. 
I'll give you one example. Job 8 says this, God alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. But here's Jesus doing exactly that. Uh, another clue in what Jesus, is in what Jesus says to the disciples. Look in verse 27. He says, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. That middle sentence there, it is I. In Greek, it's the phrase, ego ami. And when that's translated really literally, it says, I am. That when Moses first encounters God at the burning bush, he, he says, God, you got to tell me, who, who's, who should I say sent me? You know, what's your name? And God says, I am who I am. You go tell the people, I am has sent you. So when the ancient audience read this and they heard Jesus say, I am, they would know exactly what he's saying. They would have gasped. They'd say, what, who, who are you claiming to be? But what, what are you saying that you are? They, they would know that he was claiming to be God. The, the disciples get this at the very end of the story. Those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the son of God. Now, when you read this, you've got to ask yourself a question, because we, a lot of people believe that Jesus is God, and so we kind of get used to that idea, but it's kind of shocking, isn't it? You've got to ask the question, what, what do you make of someone who would claim they're God and be okay with other people worshiping them? I don't know if you've ever met someone who thought they were God. I have, um, and I'll tell you this, every single person like that is either crazy or scary, but usually both, okay? It, it, think about it this way. If the person next to you right now turned to you and said, worship me. <laughs> At minimum, you would find another seat. You would probably try and find security, uh, and you'd probably find another church, you know? Like, you, you would avoid that person from here on out. Like, you, you would be running away. When we hear Jesus claim to be God, we, we cannot say, you know what? I, I, I just think that he's a, a good teacher. can't say, I, I kind of respect him. It doesn't make sense. You have got to figure out, if you think Jesus was insane or an evil egomaniac, or you got to bow down and do what the disciples did and say, yeah, I actually think he's right. He is God and worship him. You can't just dabble in following Jesus. I mean, you can, but it isn't really taking seriously what Jesus said. The only honest options are to either totally reject him or to make him the center of your life. So what are you going to do? Now, when Jesus comes walking on the water, at first the disciples are freaked out, which makes a lot of sense. Now, I don't know what I would have done in that situation, but I do know these sage words. When there's something strange in the neighborhood, who are you going to call? <laughs> Ghostbusters, right? Like, I would have done the same thing. Uh, sometimes when we're in trouble, we think, you know, if God would just show up in my situation, it would make everything better. It would fix everything, right? I wish he would just come and do something. But actually, in, in real life experience, that isn't always the case. Sometimes when God first shows up, it freaks us out. It terrifies us. A lot of people, when they're overwhelmed, that's exactly when they're resisting God's help. Because who knows what will happen. If God shows up on the scene, he might make you do something you don't want to do. He, he might make you take an honest look at yourself, and, and that's uncomfortable. He might ask you to change something. He might not actually solve your problem right away. Or, or he might ask you to let go of the one thing that you're holding on to that you think is going to get you through the storm. And, and even though you know, you know, you're trying to cope with this thing and it's probably hurting you more than it's helping you, but still you are so terrified of letting this go that the idea of God saying, open up your hands, you're, you're resistant. You don't want that. 
In the long run, God is an incredible source of comfort. But at first, he might terrify you. The disciples cry out, but then Jesus responds, take courage, don't be afraid. Did you know that that is one of the most common commands in the Bible? Do not be afraid. I love that. God has to say it over and over and over again to his people because we're a scared group. We, We get anxious easily. But he keeps saying, do not be afraid. You don't need to fear. And I find that so comforting. But I also kind of find it frustrating because I would love to not be afraid. I would love to have courage. But it's not just like a switch you can flip, you know, like, oh, you said not to be afraid. I guess I'm not afraid anymore. Like, it doesn't work that way. So how do you actually drive out fear? You know what the second or the first most common command in the Bible is? The one right before do not be afraid? Praise the Lord. The command to worship God. I actually think these two commands are connected. Because when you worship God, when you put him at the center, it drives out the fear. When he looms largest in your eyes, it overshadows all of the smaller things that might threaten you. Think about it this way. Let's say you are in a fight. I hope you have never been in this kind of situation, but imagine you're in a fight, and you're fighting multiple people, and these guys are bigger than you, there are more of them than you, and you are surrounded, and you are looking at the situation, and you're thinking, there is no way I'm getting out of this. I'm toast. I'm done for. And just when you think things couldn't get any worse, the biggest, baddest dude you have ever seen comes walking up. A a guy who looks like he could take on all the rest of them together. And all of the guys, this is the sort of guy that when he walks up, all the other guys, they just stop and they look at him. Sort of like the reaction when I walk in a room. You know, I'm very used to this sort of thing with people. And this guy walks up and you are, you, you, now you're, you're like, it's done. Just this guy alone, I'm terrified of this guy. And he's got his eyes locked on you and he's walking towards you and you're, you're embracing yourself and he stops and says, I'm on your side. Oh, that changes things, doesn't it? Same thing happens when you realize that Jesus actually is God. Not just a teacher, not just an example, but God himself. The, the reason Jesus treads on the water is because he invented the water. The reason he can stare down the storm is because the storm is his to command. The most chaotic and unruly and dangerous aspects of our world recognize him as their maker and their master, and so should you. When you fall on your face in awe and wonder before Jesus, when he is the scariest thing you can imagine encountering, and you hear him say, I'm on your side, that drives out fear. Worship. Awe is the antidote to fear. Peter's the first to put two and two together here. I love Peter. I love all the stories about him because he's always the first to figure things out and he's always the first to fall on his face. Like it's just, it's just fantastic. And so when he, he sees Jesus and he hears his voice, he turns to the other disciples and says, I ain't afraid of no ghost. Sorry, it's Halloween. It's coming out. It's just on my brain, Okay. So Peter calls out, Jesus, if it's you, command me to come out on the water. Every time I read this, I'm like, you idiot. Like, what are you doing, man? Like, just because Jesus can do it, that's super cool. But you, like, you think you should be able to do it? Come on, man. But is he crazy? Like, maybe Peter understands the whole being a disciple thing better than we do. Maybe he remembers the first time he met Jesus, and Jesus says to him, come and follow me. 
come and walk where I walk, be where I am. Because that was the whole idea of being a disciple. Like you, you weren't just hanging around so that you could get the information from the teacher. You were hanging around so that you could watch your master and see how he lived and what he did and, and, and the ways that he accomplished things so that you could do those same things too. And so Peter is thinking, well, if my master's out on the water, I want to walk on the waves. That's where I should be. There are two deep desires in the human heart and they're in tension with each other. One is the desire for significance and the other is the desire for safety. And the reason their intention is this, if you want to do something significant, you have to take a risk. You're not gonna do anything worthwhile if you aren't gonna venture something. But if you wanna be safe, well, then you're probably gonna avoid risk. You're gonna guard yourself from risk. And so these two things are in tension with each other. But here's the thing, both of these desires for safety and significance are God-given, good desires that are built into the human heart. So the question is, how do you get them both? You do what Peter did. You go wherever Jesus goes. Because you know that wherever Jesus is, that is the safest place you can possibly be. Although from an earthly perspective, it might look like the most dangerous place you can imagine. But if Jesus has called you onto the water, it's probably riskier to stay in the boat. Of course, what you've got to do is what Peter did first. You've got to actually ask Jesus if he wants you to do that, if he wants you to go to that place. Peter is open to the risk, but he doesn't presume on what Jesus wants. He actually says, Jesus, I'm going to wait for your command before I act. When we talk about God being on our side, being with us, and that driving out fear, we're not just talking about God kind of backing up our good ideas, like, oh, I want to do this. He's going to you know, be the power behind it. I came up with it, though. This is about following Jesus, not just following your dreams. It's not just about psyching yourself up to ask out the girl or start the business or write the novel or ask for a raise or whatever. Those might be really good things, and God might want you to do those things. But we don't assume that God's just endorsing whatever risk we feel like taking. This is not a story about self-help or self-fulfillment. It's actually much better than that. This is a story about God calling us to get outside of ourselves, to follow him into a bigger, more exciting world than we could ever have come up with on our own. This is an invitation to follow him in his mission to rescue the world, which is what we were made for. And so we've got to do what Peter did. We've got to listen for Jesus' call. For Peter, that was really simple. Uh, he could just say, hey, Jesus, do you want me to do this? And Jesus would verbally respond back to him. For us, what it usually looks like is this. We spend a lot of time in Scripture, reading God's Word. Spend a lot of time in prayer, listening to what God has to say. And we spend a lot of time talking with wise, godly people about what we should do. We actually did a series about this about a year ago. It's called Turn by Turn. It's about discerning God's will for our lives. Uh, we can't get into that all right now, but I would encourage you, go check it out. It's on our website. Uh, it's really worth it. If you're trying to figure out, what does God actually want me to do? So Peter hears Jesus. He gets out of the boat. And here is where we ask the third question. What happens when we do take a risk? What happens when we take a risk? Because there are three things that I think might happen. The first is this. We might succeed. We might succeed. This is the most ridiculous part of the story. Peter actually does it. Like he actually walks on the water. Now, I haven't heard uh, other stories of people walking on the water, but I can tell you this. I've heard countless stories of ordinary people following Jesus as best as they could, pulling off things they never thought would be possible. I actually think about some of you. 
Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, when we started the, the next campaign, we challenged you to come up with a personal BHAG, uh, a big, heavenly, audacious goal, the kind of goal that would be uh, too big that you couldn't do it unless God was there and involved. Well, one of the eighth graders in our church, Michael Wilson, he came up with a BHAG, and it was to raise uh, supplies for kids who are in foster care and in our area. See, when a kid goes into a foster home, it's a, a really difficult transition. It's a, it's a tough day when they do that. And a lot of times, they don't have the normal things that they would need. Uh, oftentimes, uh, a kid comes into foster care with all of their belongings just in a, a black plastic garbage bag, and it's really discouraging. And so there are organizations that help uh, get together what are called journey bags that, that contain things like toothbrushes and toothpaste and pajamas and combs and nightlights and toys and uh, even a Bible to help get them through that transition. So what Micah wanted to do was fill 2,000 journey bags for kids. It, it would take about $100,000 to do that. And he wanted to do this as a way to communicate that these kids were loved by people in their area, that they were not forgotten, especially by God's people. And so he started to get the word out. He started to ask people to put these journey bags together. He actually asked to get journey bags instead of presents for his birthday one year. Uh, he organized a 5K to raise funds. And, and through all of this, he, he raised enough to make about 700 journey bags, which is pretty impressive if you ask me. But that wasn't his goal. Uh, so one day, uh, his mother, Courtney, who happens to be on staff here in Kids World, uh, she was at BMO Harris Bank, and she saw this kind of wishing fountain there. And so she put in a wish that uh, they would fulfill uh, the rest of these journey bags. Now, at first, the wish was declined, but then the bank changed their mind. And out of the 18,000 wishes they had received, they decided to supply the rest of the bags. And now, those 2,000 bags are out in the community blessing children all around this area uh, and making a difference. One 11-year-old girl received a bag, uh, and she started crying when she opened it up because it had all the things she was worried she wouldn't have that she didn't uh, bring with her. And, and she actually said, this bag is a gift from God. And, and all of that happened because a 13-year-old in our church decided he would take a risk. When we take a risk that Jesus calls us to, just like Peter, we might succeed. We might do something we never thought possible. But something else might happen. Look at verse 30. When Peter saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. See, when we rest, sometimes we succeed, but we might also fail. Why did Peter fail? Because he took his eyes off of Jesus. He saw the wind and the waves, and the, the fear that was momentarily driven out by Jesus' presence came rushing back in. You ever have that experience? You do something courageous, but as soon as you've committed, it dawns on you what you've done, and you're like, oh, I've made a terrible mistake, you know? But a few minutes ago, I was talking about how worship drives out fear, how, how faith in Jesus as God drives out fear. And you might have heard that and thought, well, that's nice, that sounds inspiring, but, but really? Like, it's not that simple for me. I, I mean, I worship Jesus, I trust him, I've tried that whole thing, but I'm, I'm still afraid a lot. And that's Okay. All of us, like Peter, we're, we're a mix of faith and doubt, of courage and fear. And if we're honest, the doubt and the fear wins a lot more than the faith and the courage. But learning to trust Jesus is like anything else. Uh, we, it's a mixed bag and it takes time. And at first we fail and flail more often than we succeed. But here's the important question. What happened after Peter failed? Was that the end? Story's done there? 
Did Jesus say, well, you had your one shot and you blew it. Way to go. Look at verse 31. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? Here's the question. It's a really important question. When you're reading stories about Jesus, you got to ask the question. You, you probably are doing this without even realizing it, but you got to decide what tone of voice Jesus used when he said it. Like in this case, when he said, why did you doubt? Was that a tone of disappointment, of anger, of impatience? Was he shaking his head, rolling his eyes? I don't think he was. I think his tone was probably firm. He's asking a serious question, but I think there was also a gentleness and a love in his voice too. Because here's what we know from the rest of the Bible. Jesus isn't done with Peter. Peter was the first person to actually get to go inside the empty tomb and check it out. When Jesus left to go to heaven, he actually put Peter in charge of the early Christian movement. On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit arrived, uh, Peter preaches to thousands of people and thousands of people come to faith in Christ. Peter faces down religious and political leaders who want to arrest him for his preaching. He heals people. He raises a woman from the dead. He starts churches. He wrote two books of the Bible. And of course, along the way, with all that success in the mix is a bunch of failures too. But it's so important for us to see, with God, failure is not final. Every failure has a future. And here's why this matters. Because if God is gracious and patient with us when we fail, it means we can take risks. If he is going to come down hard on us, we're going to be clamped up and paralyzed. But so many of us are so afraid of failing, so afraid that if we fail, that's going to be the final verdict on our life. That defines us. That's it. So I'm not even going to try here's the thing. God is not interested in holding your failures over your head. You know what he's actually interested in? The third thing that might happen when we take risks. The third thing is we grow. We grow. I think when Jesus asked the question, why did you doubt? He was asking a real question he wanted Peter to consider. He wanted Peter to reflect on what what actually was going on in his heart. What what got his eyes off of Jesus? What, What was going on that he didn't have faith? You see, whether Peter succeeded or failed, uh, more than anything, Jesus wants Peter to grow for the next time. In fact, I actually think part of Peter's future success probably came from reflecting on incidences like this, that he grew from the experience. In fact, I think that's one of the main purposes of this miracle. This miracle is not one of those ones that's kind of done in front of all the masses. The only people who saw it were the disciples, the people that Jesus was training. And I think he put them in that situation to say, I know, I know you guys have small faith right now. And I'm going to send you out on a big mission. So I got to grow your faith. I got to put you in a situation that will do that. Any of you ever heard of rejection therapy? Okay, uh, it's a game. And the way it works is this. The, the idea is that uh, if you want to grow in confidence in awkward social situations, you should play this game. So uh, the way it works is you have to have someone reject you every single day. Sounds like fun, doesn't it? The way it works is you pull a card each day, and the cards have different things that you've got to do until someone says no to you. Some cards say things like, ask to cut in line at a store. Ask your friend to do your laundry. Challenge a stranger to arm wrestle. Or try to buy something that isn't actually on sale. And you've got to keep doing that activity until someone tells you no, until you get rejected by someone. Now, why in the world would you do that? 
It's because a lot of us need to learn that the, the risk of putting ourselves out there and hearing someone say no, it's not actually all that bad. That when you face opposition, when you get rejection, you survive, you make it, and you can, you can have more courage the next time you gotta do something that feels risky. I think Jesus is doing something kind of like that here. I think he's saying they're going to face things that they don't even understand yet, and they've got to have their faith built up. So I'm going to put them in a situation where they get stretched because Jesus knows that people don't think their way to being courageous. Like, you don't become brave before you face your fear. You become brave by facing your fear. And so Jesus actually puts us in situations where we're going to be stretched and we're going to have to grow. Now, that's what happens when we take risks, but we've got to ask the opposite question too. What happens if we don't? Like, what is actually the risk of not risking? Because here's what I think. I don't think anything truly worthwhile happens without risk. Without risk, there is no creativity. I mean, anybody who has ever put paint on a canvas or words on a page or a song on your lips, you know that that's a risky thing. You're going to be vulnerable. You don't know how it's going to come across. You don't know if it'll work out. You don't know if it will be as effective as you want or how people will respond. Without risk, there is no discovery. If you only stay in the well-worn paths of what you already know, there would be no advancing in science or any other field of study. Without risk, there's no prosperity. Anybody who has ever started a business or invested in something knows that you might not get the return on your money. You might lose money on this. Without risk, there is no service to other people. Because if you're going to take on the burdens of someone else, you're going to take the risks that come with those burdens. Without risk, there is no justice. You can't stand up and speak for those who don't have a voice or push back on the status quo because the status quo is going to push back on you. Without risk, there is no love. Listen to what C.S. Lewis put, says. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It, it will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. You know, I actually think that a lot of the pain in the world comes from people who have refused to take a risk. I mean, think about it. If you overhear someone gossiping about someone you work with or go to school with, and you stay silent, you won't take the risk of speaking up for that person. That person suffers because of that. Or think about a father who won't take the risk of actually being vulnerable with his son, won't actually talk about something meaningful. That son suffers the loss of that relationship with his dad. When we refuse to take on risks, we push suffering onto other people. And in fact, when we refuse to take risks, we're not actually choosing safety for ourselves. We're sacrificing the things that make life most worth living. So here's where it's got to come home to you. Where do you need to take a risk? Maybe in the near future. Let me suggest a few ideas. Maybe there's a risk you need to take in a relationship. Maybe you need to be the first person to step forward and try and reconcile. Or maybe you need to open up about something that you've never talked with anybody about. Maybe you need to finally commit to a relationship. Or maybe you need to take the risk of getting out of a toxic or abusive relationship. Maybe there's a risk you need to take in your work life. You know, you've got to propose a new idea. 
or take on a new, more challenging role or responsibility. Maybe you need to go back to work after raising your kids or quit your job to take care of your aging parents. Maybe there's a risk you need to take in the area of generosity with your money. That there's somewhere that, that God is working and you need to be invested in that. Maybe a friend who could use some financial support. Or maybe you made a commitment to the next campaign a couple of years ago and you still haven't fulfilled that and you've got to take a risk and say, I'm going to actually do what I said I'd do. Or maybe as part of the year-end gift this year, as we're trying to go above and beyond so that we can finish strong with the next campaign, you say, well, I've already I've given, I've, I've done something, but I'm going to stretch and go further, do something more. Or maybe you just need to start giving something, anything, because you've never trusted God with your money before. Do you need to take a risk spiritually? Confess a sin that you've been holding on to and no one knows about. Or maybe you need to get baptized. Uh, You've uh, committed to Christ, but you have never gone public. You have never said, I'm all in, and declared your allegiance to him in public. Or maybe you need to go on a go team. Maybe you've heard about this before, and we've been talking about it this week, and uh, you're thinking, man, I'd love to do that, get out of my context, learn something, uh, figure out how to serve and share my faith. But it's scary. The great thing about a go team is we'll walk with you on that. But we'll be by your side and guide you in that process of taking that adventure. Maybe it's time. Or maybe you need to take a risk in actually just talking to someone about God. It might be as simple as just inviting someone to inspiring stories next weekend. Whatever it is, God has something for you. He's inviting you to respond in some way, I think, for each and every one of us. So the question is, will you respond to his invitation? We're about to celebrate communion. Communion is where we remember the sacrifice of Jesus for us. And I think it's really, really cool to think about uh, this story right before we think about communion. Because you think about it, it, what does it mean that the one who walked on the water was also nailed to the cross? I'll tell you at least one thing it means. It means he didn't have to be on that cross. It means he had the power, if he wanted to, to get right off of that cross. So it wasn't nails that were holding him there. Why did he stay on the cross? Because he loves you, and he loves me. And and someone who would do that for us, who wouldn't just risk danger, but willingly embrace danger, knowing what would happen to him, if he would love us that much, when he calls us to take a risk for him, we know we can trust him. We know that he's not going to ask us to do something that will destroy us after he has given his all for us. That's what we're going to remember in just a few minutes. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to be people who take risks. We we want to get out of the boat. We'd love to walk on water. We would love to do something. But God, we we are people of little faith. We know it. And so God, we, we ask that you would come in and you would drive out fear. You would give us courage. And that you would do that by showing yourself to us so that we see who it is that calls us. The one who commands the waves and the one who gave his life. Jesus, we pray that even now as we celebrate communion together, that you would be moving here, reminding us of your love and calling us to what you have next. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.